0: Hi everyone, welcome to Dame is a four letter word. I'm LP. And I'm Lindsay. And today we're gonna to be talking about Dames Who Got Aim. Lindsay, who are you raising your glass to? Yeah, uh, I'm raising
1: my bottle of Bolchka to Ludmila Mikhailovna Pavlochenko, whose kill record at the end of her sniper career totaled three hundred and nine, with either thirty two or thirty six enemy snipers included in that list. Who are you raising your glass to?
0: I am raising my Alta Gracia coffee porter to Mamie Peanut Johnson. She was one of three women to play pro ball. She pitched for the Indianapolis Clowns in the Negro Leagues from 1953 to 1955. Okay, Um, let's start with you. So let's talk about baseball. And unfortunately, not (laughs) warm, fuzzy, makes you be proud to be an American sort of way. Baseball as it was played before Jackie Robinson. And I didn't know a lot of this stuff, so I'm hoping that this isn't too repetitive for some of y'all. Okay. Baseball started being played in the 1840s with the first professional leagues popping up after the Civil War. The weird thing when you think about segregated baseball is that this was only writing in the rules of baseball for a brief period from 1867 to 1871. Hmm. It was, like, the first attempt at starting, like, a professional league, and they were debating about whether or not to, you know, basically say it was whites only, and they, they figured, well, if we do let... Black people in, then some people are going to feel bad about it. But if we don't, then nobody's feelings will be hurt, (laughs) was literally the rationale. But in 1871, like a newer um, professional association started up that did not have this in the rules. So between 1871 and the end of the 19th century, there were actually about 70 African-American men who played in the professional level. Not that their lives were, you know, easy, but they weren't disallowed from playing. Mm Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the 19th century, though, those in charge of baseball decided that this integration was making some people uncomfortable, so they made a gentleman's agreement that baseball was going to be white only. Ugh. Um, yeah, because it was never in the rules, like, they, they, base commissioner after commissioner would say, no, we don't have any such restriction, it's just that the white players are better.
1: Right. Yeah. Which is um, what so... they said for every other thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> there were still integrated semi-pro teams at the time, and some attempts were made to start up a black league, but none really stuck until 1920, when Rube Foster started what we now call the Negro Leagues, and communities would build up their own teams. There were, it varied from time to time. Sometimes there was like eight or ten teams, sometimes there was like six main teams, and it's not really the same as we think of the major leagues today, where, you know, you play the teams in your division, and then you have a championship, and like, you're basically playing other teams that are, you know what I mean, in your league all the time. Yeah. That was like about half their schedule. And then the other half of the schedule was a lot of what was called barnstorming. Like they would travel everywhere. They would play um, like minor league white teams. They would play like if your town's, I don't know, fire department scraped up together enough money and they thought that they could beat you, you'd play them. And an interesting... Statistic is, according to the Ken Burns documentary, Baseball, there were 438 times that Major League teams played Negro League teams in postseason exhibition games. Oh, God. And? Uh, The white teams won 129 of those. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, for the 309 times... They lost, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> crazy, like <laughs> that the argument was still being made. So, yeah, a lot of the stars of white Major League Baseball at one point or another would play against an Negro League team. And one Negro League player later baldly said that that was how some of the greats, your Joe DiMaggio or your Ted Williams, would, you know, play against an Negro League team and notice that his batting average stayed the same while all his teammates took a dive. And he'd be like, oh, I guess I'm actually good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah, that's a really oversimplified version, but I just want you to understand the context that I'm talking in when I say that maybe Peanut Johnson was the, she was the first woman to pitch in pro ball because yes, she was pitching for a Negro League team, but she at least considered it, you know, to be pro ball.
1: Was she, was she called Peanut because she was small?
0: Five foot one. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, weighed like 100 pounds soaking wet. So yeah, Mamie Johnson was born in 1935. She grew up in her grandmother's house in Ridgeway, South Carolina. Her mother lived in D.C., but she didn't think it was a good place to raise a kid. So she, you know, left Mamie with her grandmother. Mamie started playing baseball when she was very young, taught by her uncle Leo Bones Bolton, and he taught her to not throw like a girl.
1: <laughs> so she was taught to pitch overhand.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, later she tried to play softball, and she's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I want to throw hard. Yeah. <laughs> so she would even use, like, uh, they were kind of poor, so they'd use a homemade ball. It was literally just a rock wound up with twine and masking tape. Wow. That's pretty fucking cool. So she's actually still around, so you can see all these amazing interviews with her on YouTube. Really? <laughs> she's like total firecracker. She's awesome. Uh, There was one where, like, the off-camera interviewer asks her how she got so accurate with her pitching, and she just matter-of-factly was like, oh, I used to knock birds off the fence. (laughs) She's like, it's not easy. I mean, they can fly, you know? (laughs) Fucking good. That's a good point. So, yeah, she lived in South Carolina until she was about 10, and she'd play the ball with the fellows, as she put it. But when her grandmother died, she had to move to New Jersey with her aunt and uncle. And at first she tried to play baseball by joining a girls softball team. Like, yeah, but she hated it. She was... Yeah. they lose all the time, and she would, like, she wanted a pitch. And, like, they were like, just lob it on in underhand. And she's like, yeah, um, I... Why? Then they'll hit it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dude, when I fucking played baseball... Well, I I played softball when I was young, young, and I didn't hit shit because I was so short and my whole strategy was just to sit so, so fucking low that it would all be called a ball. So I just got on base and I was
0: like, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> you just used your lack of a strike zone to your advantage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> crafty, crafty. I like it. But
1: I always got hit with balls. Also, did you get hit with a lot of balls when you played?
0: I, I think that was probably the only times I ever got on base. Yes. <laughs> I I like played for like you know a year and then I just kind of decided baseball was better off without me in it. <laughs> oh man, dude, I was left field, like.
1: <laughs> dude, and you like when you're young, you already like they think that we don't pick up on that shit, you know? I'm like. Dude, I'm yeah, fucking 9. I know that you put me in the outfield, because we're 9, and <laughs> nobody's gonna hit it out here. Like, <laughs> I'm not Bradley. dumb, but the pot fly sucked. I got fu- I got the, the laces imprinted on my lip once from a fucking pot fly.
0: Ouch. Damn.
1: Bad sport for me. Anyway. Peanut. Uh,
0: so, yes. she was. So, she was about 10, and she just quit softball because she's like, no, I mean... I don't throw softball. I throw hardball. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One day she walks past an elementary school and sees some white boys about her age playing baseball. Not softball, baseball. So she goes up to the coach and tells him, like, hey, I can throw like crazy. And he tells her, like, no, this is a police athletic league. This isn't for little girls and she should run along home. Hmm. So it was like a little league team, you know, except for the police were sponsoring it. So she does run along home, but... She thinks it over, and the next day she shows at the police station and demands to talk to this guy. And she asks him if there's a law against girls playing baseball. So he's like, um, well, no. And she's like, well, if it's not illegal, I think I should be on your team. (laughs) So he was, like, amused enough by this, because this sounds so cute. He's like, all right, well, let me see your fastball. They play catch for a bit, and he's like, all right, be on the field tomorrow at four. (laughs) Nice. She asks what he's going to tell the boys on the team, and he's like, well, let your strong right arm do the talking. Okay. So they made it to the division championships and won two years in a row and she wound up moving back to DC when she was in her teens to live with her mother and she was like playing on semi-pro baseball teams after she graduated from high school. All of them were mostly male. She did sometimes play with her friend Rita Jones was on some of her teams and they wanted to be scouted for the major league despite their sex and race. And then Mamie saw a notice in the newspaper that, you know, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was holding tryouts. Mm-hmm. So her and Rita go to the field to try out. And yeah, this is, you've seen A League of Their Own, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, did you happen to notice while watching that movie that it's a little uh, monochromatic? Yeah. Yeah. So carefully, there actually is a scene in the movie where the ball is hit off the field and a young African-American woman whips it back onto the field where the white gals in their skirts are playing. Uh This is an allusion to the story of what happened when Rita and Mamie went to go try out for the AGPL. So they show up with their gloves and their balls. And, you know, in and their and spikes and everything, and the coaches and the other players all pretend they're not there. Mm-hmm. Mamie tries to tell the coach how she how well she could pitch, and he told her, you know, let's see how well you can run. Scram. So she throws a killer fastball into the field, looks him in the eye, and stomps off. And no one dared to pick it up while she was still there. So that's what that scene is, is uh-huh. <laughs> director admitting, yeah, the AGPL That's Mamie. Yeah. So that that's, like, an allusion to that story. mm uh-huh. Hmm. which was kind of awesome for the director to admit that and put it in. Anyway, um, in an interview later, Mamie said this was like really a watershed moment for her recognizing, you know, segregation and racism. It had never been forced into her face as much by then. She lived mostly in black communities, but she did have some white relatives on her father's side of the family and they'd never treated her badly. Mm-hmm. So she felt like this was the first moment where someone had said to her, you're not good enough to play with me because you're black. But she didn't really feel that bad about this because she's like, well, I, you know, I could have played with the girls, but instead I got to play with the fellas. So she kept on using fellas. It's so good. She was still playing in the semi-pro teams of the St. Cyprians and the Alexandria All-Stars, and she notices that there's this guy in a pinstripe suit who's coming to all her games and watching her pitch very closely. So one game after she gets out of a jam with batters on base, with a combination of her fastball, breaking ball, and playing head games with the batter, she was like, I used to love to, like, throw that inside pitch, because they were never expecting that I would try to beat them, <laughs> and they'd be terrible. The, the guy in the pinstripes turns out to be Bish Tyson, who's a former ball player himself, and he was friends with the business manager of the Indianapolis Clowns, who is named Bunny Downs because everyone in baseball has to have some sort of weird nickname. <laughs> she gets a tryout with the team, who's on their way through D.C. area, on their way to spring training, and then she's on the bus the next day. This is in 1953. In the interview I saw of her, the reporter asked what it felt like, and Mamie said, ever win the lottery? So she wanted to play ball her whole life, and now she was. And she got this chance. She'd already settled down at 18 with a husband and a child, and her mother took care of her son while she was out on the road, despite the fact that Mamie had kind of just slipped off to play baseball. <laughs> so Mamie was the first woman to pitch in pro ball, but the Indianapolis Clowns had already had another woman on the team, Tony Stone who she played the same position as Hank Aaron. They'd like swap games like before he went to the major leagues. Wow. Yeah. So when Tony left the clowns for another team, a woman named Connie Morgan took her place. So the clowns did have two women playing on their team. Mm. In this great NPR interview of her, uh, the reporter asked Mamie if it was difficult to get the respect of her teammates as she was a woman. It wasn't really an unexpected question. Her teammate, Tony Stone got purposely spiked by one of her teammates when he was sliding into second, like at a practice after she first joined. So, like, mm-hmm. you're not welcome. <laughs> but he said, uh, the gentlemen, they're going to respect you, but you got your gentlemen and then you got your men. The men, you just got to strike out three or four of them and then they pipe down. <laughs> her appearance also added to people's surprise at her skills. So she was five foot two in her cleats and she barely weighed 100 pounds. So her clown form, like if you see it in pictures, it's just like hanging off of her. Like. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: A legend goes that she got her nickname of Peanut from the home run hitter, Hank Bayless. She was pitching to him and he was two strike downs when someone from the stands yelled at him, that little girl's going to make you cry. (laughs) So Hank yells back at the fan like, that little girl's no bigger than a peanut. I ain't afraid of her. Did she strike him out? Yeah. The umpire called that third strike on the next pitch and she yelled back at him, call me Peanut now. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so that's how she got her nickname, supposedly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had a really rough schedule. The team would play like every day when they were practicing, like sometimes twice a day. And she was hired admittedly in part to try to draw a crowd. So she would pitch an inning or two in practically every game. in one occasion, she even pitched an inning or two in both games of a doubleheader. Um, She'd even be a utility infielder if they needed one. And she'd bat too. She hit, she hit in, like, the 260s. Like, we didn't have this designated hitter. We all had to be ball players.
1: <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing, and they didn't get paid shit.
0: Well, they, they got paid, like, in the hundreds of dollars, but it also depended on, like... There was actually even literally a thing where, like, uh, you'd get a cut of the door, so if you didn't draw a crowd, you didn't get much. And Team 1 got a bigger cut of the door than the team who lost.
1: Can you imagine if we had that now? That would be something.
0: It's really interesting hearing about some of these, like, old-time pitchers. It's just, if if a guy pitches, like, on only three or four days rest, you hear about it, like, it's this, like, amazing feat, and then he doesn't even pitch a whole game. This was, like, you'd be pitching complete games, like, every day. (laughs) Like, it's insane how much pitchers used to just tap to be, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Iron.
1: Sports teams are one of the few groups of workers that are unionized Too. Wait, what? Sports people? Only 7% of workers in the United States are unionized now, and those are people,
0: a lot of them, you know? like You you know that they'll go on strike, all of them. (laughs) Yeah. So being on the road was actually pretty tough, because some of the time, a lot of the time, they'd be going through the south. So there were times that they'd have to sleep on the bus or change on it if the stadium was segregated or if there weren't any hotels that would let them stay there. You're good enough to play ball with us, but you are you can't stay in our hotel. Sometimes you'd be playing in stadium where if they'd gone in to see the game, they would have had to go in through the back entrance and leave the park to take a leak because the facilities would be white only. Um, yeah. She maintains that it was like worth it to be doing this because she was playing with some of the finest players she'd ever met, and she learned a lot about baseball from them. One of those players was Satchel Paige, who, after playing a game against her when he was in Kansas, when he was like on the Kansas City Monarchs, offered to help her out with her curveball. So, if Satchel Page offers you advice on pitching, you take it. <laughs> <laughs> a legend doesn't even cut it as a description. Some people think that he might have been the best pitcher of all time. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to call the sack about him because he's really interesting. Oh, you want to talk about Satchel Page, don't you? Oh, he's awesome. <laughs> so, pitching since like the mid 1920s. He was one of the highest paid players in Negro League Baseball. He joked that when baseball was still segregated, he wasn't going to pitch for the majors because they couldn't afford him. <laughs> <laughs> he had awesome names for his pitches, like the Treble Ball, the Long Tom, the Hesitation Pitch. <laughs> the Treble Ball. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> yeah, he said that they banned him from using the Hesitation Pitch because he was striking too many people out with it. <laughs> prime that he wasn't the player to integrate baseball, but there were a couple of reasons that it was Jackie instead of him. For one, he would never have been willing to start in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. like He was already a pro. And two, really have the same disposition as Jackie Robinson. He wasn't really well known for, you know, humility (laughs) and (laughs) non-outspokenness. If a crowd or an opposing team pissed him off, he'd just call in his fielder. Literally, he'd be pitching to batters with no one in the outfield behind him. Wow, I like that. Yeah, sometimes if no one was on the base already, he'd tell his infielders to just start playing cards because they weren't needed. <laughs> and it's not like he did this once. <laughs> Ted D- Radcliffe, who caught for him, remembered this happening at least four times when he was catching. Can you see videos of this shit at all? I, I don't know. I don't think so. But... Uh,
1: so he, yeah. he taught Mamie how to pitch
0: when he gave her this tutorial he'd spent the prime of his career watching white guys he'd strike out go on to lucrative careers and then when the door was open for him to do that he was in his 40s and so he'd watch young guys who he'd played with get contracts and awards he did go up into the major leagues as the oldest rookie and in, in, at 42 1948 with the Cleveland Indians and then got released from his contract and so when she met him in 1954 he was back with the Kansas City Monarchs he'd gone back to barnstorming cuz yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) the major leagues I guess didn't really agree so yeah cuz Mamie was entering the Negro Leagues right when they were starting to collapse Mm -hmm. with integration the fans were watching their favorite players in the major leagues not going to Negro League games not that it was fully integrated until 1959 when um The Boston Red Sox finally hired. Yeah. Yeah, that's really embarrassing, though. Obviously, integration was a great thing for baseball. The way it was gone about didn't sit well for the Negro League owners and players. For one, some major league teams didn't want to accept the prior contracts the players they were hiring whenever they could. So, you know, now when a player moves from one team to the other, the team the player is leaving gets some kind of compensation. But the major league team owners like were like, no, they, you weren't playing on another team. No. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get to her one day, but one of the most vocal critics of how integration happening was a woman named Effa Manley, who owned the New York Eagles with her husband Abe Manley. Uh, she was hardly in favor of segregation. Her biological race is of dispute because... But she was raised by a white mother and a black stepfather, and she identified herself as black. She served as a secretary for the NAACP at one point, and she led a don't buy where you can't work boycott of New York City businesses in like the 1930s. But when the major leagues were being integrated, she decried the fact that like her fans were leaving her. And they would thought when integration happened that their teams would join the major leagues as like a farm team at the very least, not just disbanded, but that just wasn't. (laughs) What was her name again? Effa Manley? Effa Manley. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so in 1954, when Satchel Paige tutored Mamie for an hour on how to throw a curveball. He told her she was holding it too tightly, that she should be aiming it to break on the outside of the plate, and by the end of the lesson, she had it down. Um, Some stories say that that's the pitch that she used to, you know, strike out Hank Bayless when she got her nickname, but that seems a little bit too... (laughs) Even though I'm not making the case that she was on par with Satchel Pades, it's tempting to think that he offered to tutor her because he had some kind of sympathy for her. Mm-hmm. After all, striking out guys who could go about their career, like, now in a way that they hadn't been able to, and in a way that she was still never going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and i like to think that, that kind of resonated with him a little bit. Yeah. Mamie Pina Johnson retired from playing pro ball in 1955 when she was 20. She claims a record of 33 and 8, but Negro League records were spotty before integration and even more spotty afterwards, so there's no like corroboration of that. Mm -hmm. She estimated later that she'd had something in the neighborhood of 268 strikeouts. Wow. She went back to her family and went to nursing school, after which she was a nurse for 30 years before retiring. In her retirement, she started work at the Negro Leagues baseball shop in Maryland, where she ran into writer Michelle Green when she offered to autograph the shirt she was buying of her. (laughs) Uh, Michelle Green later wrote a children's book on Mamie Johnson called A Strong Right Arm that's uh, supposedly going to be turned into a movie. In 2008, in a show of apology, Major League Baseball teams held a ceremonial draft of Negro League players. Mamie was drafted by the Washington Nationals. She's involved in her Maryland community, trying to get the field that she used to play on to be restored for the next generation to enjoy. When she was asked if she thinks any women today will be able to, you know, follow in her footsteps, she says, there's some young ladies now that can play baseball, but they're not given the opportunity. But she believes that if one does get the opportunity, she'll prove herself.
1: (laughs) Mm, Here's the fucking Mamie. Yep. Pavlachinko, well known to fame. (laughs) russia's your country fighting's your game the world will always love you for all time to come 300 nazis is by all right gun. so ludmila pavlichenko had high scores as well but they mainly meant dead bodies so yeah a bit of a different tone here for you born in what is now the kiev region of the ukraine Ludmila pavlichenko learned all about small armaments when she was a teen working as a grinder at the arsenal factory the factory had a military club that gave the opportunity to its members to learn more about weapons and there Ludmila was able to master small arms before working in the factory though Lyudmila had been able to finish nine levels of schooling, where she'd mostly been interested in adventure, travel, and war stories. She had caused a lot of grief, though, to her superiors, because she had a black hatred of authority, and was pretty fucking difficult. All was well, though, when she discovered her first passion, which was Ukrainian history. She enrolled in 1937 at the State University in Kiev to study history. She chose to write her thesis on the Ukrainian soldier, politician, and diplomat named Hetman. Bogdan Khmelnytsky. known in Russian as Bogdan Chmielnitsky. Bogdan was a Cossack, and he's famous in the Ukraine for leading an uprising against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, of which the Ukraine had been a part of at the time. His uprising was a success, though it ultimately led to the Ukraine losing its independence to the Russians. So, yeah. <laughs> Cossacks are, I guess, you could call a class of people in the south of Russia or in the Ukrainian region who used to come up with armies in order to maintain borders between people. They did a lot of dancing and... No, do tell! (laughs) The Russians have, I guess, always had to deal with them. The modern-day Cossacks, though, are subsidized by the Russian government and are a bit less potent than in the old glorious days of Bogdan. They seem to now just come up with different titles for themselves and they wear a lot of medals and they regularly like redesign their wardrobes. They always come out with like different jackets <laughs> and they sometimes crash exhibitions of modern culture to make a point about how their traditional culture is being trampled upon. Aww. So Ludmila's original passion was the history of the Ukraine and these Kaseki that involved Mr. Bogdan, these old Kaseki, mm-hmm. but you can still find their remnants. When World War II broke out, though, on the Eastern Front, another passion welled up in Ludmila's heart, which was to be a warrior. Uh, she set off for the war recruitment center with manicured nails, high heels, a smart-looking dress, and a certificate in shooting proficiency. <laughs> she told the somewhat stunned recruitment officer that she wanted to fight in an infantry unit and that, God damn it, she wanted a r- her own rifle. Some sources I read said that the recruitment officer recommended she joined to be a field nurse instead. But in the book by Kazimiera Jekatom I read, which you read,
0: yeah, yeah, no, she she wrote a ton about the night witches too.
1: Well, she didn't mention this episode, and I don't, I'm not sure how stunned the recruitment officer actually was because you know, in in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union, in World War II, many women fought, and there were like 45 to 50 female snipers.
0: If you can hold a rifle, we'll take you. <laughs> Basically. If you'll kill a Nazi, we'll take you. <laughs>
1: yeah. But in Cottom's account, her shooting profi- proficiency certificate, yeah, meant the recruitment officer had very little choice, and he took her. Mm-hmm. So two days later, she was sent to a sniper's platoon where she swore her allegiance to the famous VI Chapaev division, and not long after her arrival, the division began retreating from its positions along the Pratt River, because the enemies had kept dropping paratroopers inside division lines, and they'd been inflicting heavy personnel losses on Pavlachenko's side. So, she was a private attached to the second company, which was called the Shock Company, because they were that fucking rugged. (laughs) It was strictly forbidden to even think of death before battle in this company. (laughs) Although I suspect they had trouble enforcing this.
0: Yeah, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) But on August... 8th 1941, her division had almost reached Odessa, and Pavlichenko's 54th Razinsky Regiment was resisting the enemy's advance near the village of Shevchenko. Ludmila and the Schott Company were charged with the duty of sniping from the back, preventing the Germans from breaking through from that direction, and they'd been generally successful. Later, the battle for the hill 54.2 was essential for the Soviets, because if they won that hill, they'd be able to occupy it and create a more stable defense. In this four-day artillery battle, which was near the village of Beliavka, Ludmila killed her first two Nazis. Now, there's a tendency among some of the Pavlichenko's storytellers to emphasize the shock and sadness Ludmila felt just after her first two killings, because she was a woman, after all.
0: I just He's... kind of feel like that's more of a human thing one way or the
1: other. Horse shit, right? Yeah. Such an uh, injustice to men as well, because... Women don't have a premium on feeling shitty after they kill someone. Yeah. On August 29th, they were fighting for control of the Odessa Highway, and Pavlichenko fucked up. She failed to notice some German snipers hiding in the thick grass at a small graveyard near a state farm not far from the highway. Ludmilla had climbed a tree when two German snipers spotted her. She had no other option but to drop as quickly as she could out of the tree, and while she wasn't shot, she'd fallen about three meters and
0: hurt her back pretty badly. Ooh. Wait, three meters. That's like ten feet almost, right?
1: Yeah. Pretty bad. But she, I think she learned a valuable lesson. Um, just fucking look around.
0: Look out for Nazis. <laughs>
1: um, she spent two days in bed and she had to use a walking stick for a few days after. And this was just uh her first of many injuries she would have in her short though very successful career. And she should have been hurt much worse. Uh, She was very lucky. She just landed on a very soft ground between two
0: graves.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All of this had already happened before her first month as a sniper. And soon enough, on October 9th, she took over command of her sniper company. So just a little over a month after joining. But she took over because she had to. The sniper commander had been killed, and the next in line was wounded worse than she from a battle that had taken place in the Dalnyski sector. So Pavlochenko was chosen.
0: Battlefield promotion.
1: Yeah. She was also wounded, though. A sniper shell had skinned her head in the battle, um, mm. so she covered the wound with a dirty rag, and she put a cap over it to hide it from the other soldiers. Um, and with her face bloodied, she assumed command of the snipers for the rest of the battle, going in and out of consciousness and shooting Nazis. Um, she was finally evacuated to a medical unit where they tended to her head wound. But her soldiers hadn't known about her wound until after the battle. Wow. So I don't know. I'm assuming she would like take a small nap, wake up, yell out an order,
0: or I have no idea. So by take a small nap, you mean pass out? I <laughs> did. Yeah, they said.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, in the first two and a half months of her service, she'd achieved a kill score of already 187. Ooh. Yeah, before, and her and the Soviet troops were finally evacuated from Odessa and its re- regions at this point. I quote Cottom's account that by this time already, she was one of the best snipers of the Independent Maritime Army. So, nice. two months in, yeah. And two months in, I'd like to highlight the difficulty of not just being a sniper, but let alone the best. And we have to keep in mind that while Mila had had shooting training at the small armaments factory, She'd not been trained formally to be a sniper. Well, most snipers, as you know nowadays, spend months, years training and practicing before even entering war. Yeah, she had none of that. She'd basically just been studying Ukrainian history before she joined. Yeah, the physical conditioning necessary to be a good sniper. I mean, she would wait in a still position for up to 18 hours or more and pretend to be dead takes a huge amount of physical skill and mental strength, and Ludmila yeah. excelled at it and was one of the best. She'd usually wait in a foxhole or under a bush with a partner who had binoculars, and her scouts would be able to report on whether a target was dead or alive and in need of being shot by her. <laughs> but, okay, so from Odessa, Pavlichenko's army was transferred to fight for Sevastopol in the Crimea, along with the Black Sea Fleet, for over 250 days and nights. This was tough. Pavluchenko and the troops encountered some really fucking rough mountainous terrain here. And it was here in the spring of 1942 that Pavluchenko also, among all of this mountainous, horrible terrain, she waited out and hunted so many of her enemy prey. But most notably, she shot one expert enemy sniper who had killed himself over 400 Allied soldiers in Dunkirk. Whoa. Yeah. Pavlachenko, like I said, had killed anywhere from 32 to 36 enemy snipers, and she killed most of them in the mountains in the spring of 1942. She was among the first Soviet Soviet snipers who began the sniper training program as well. It had come about out of necessity, organically, And her and her fellow snipers, because, you know, there wasn't a program before this, had started to take younger snipers under their wings and began to train them, often in very difficult battle situations throughout the war. By 1942, after having been a sniper for only over a year, Pavluchenko was an old-timer in the Soviet sniper world, and she already had little gray hair sprouting from her deep black hair. Yeah, she was about 27. (laughs) She'd suffered several concussions and wounds by this point and eventually they began to bother her more and more Uh, but she had to continue on as the battle for Sevastopol became more and more fierce and she was needed everywhere moving from sector to sector just killing and training people and waiting and killing Um, I quote Cottom's book here that at one meeting of snipers she pledged to raise her score from 254 to 300 in a few days and she kept her word yikes And not long after, she'd reached a kill score of 309, including 36 enemy expert snipers. This is Cottoms, so I'm going with 36. She was wounded again by a bomb fragment and evacuated from Sevastopol in a submarine. Um, She never went back into battle after this, and though her sniper career was over, her life wasn't, which is pretty impressive.
0: Compared to a lot of people involved in World War
1: II? Yeah. Later that year... In 1942, again, she was invited to tour the U.S. by Eleanor Roosevelt, and was the first Soviet citizen to be received by the White House. Wow! Yeah, first Soviet citizen we were willing to extend an invitation to was both a sniper <laughs> you and to a kill woman. Kill
0: 300 Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and nine. Sorry. <laughs> yeah,
1: she went all around the U.S. She met Charlie Chaplin and went up into Canada, where they gifted her with a Winchester rifle equipped with an optical sight. Back in Moscow, she was awarded twice with the Order of Lenin. Back in the Ukraine, she graduated from the University of Kiev in 1945. Even despite all of her concussions and head wounds, um, she still had a memory. She spent the rest of her life as a military journalist and historian and served on the Soviet Women's Committee. Also, she was a member of the Association for Friendship with the Peoples of Africa and in general was just heaped on with awards and honors that are kind of just too numerous to even talk about here. She was very active for the rest of her life, but her life was cut short when all the concussions and wounds caught up with her and she died at 58 years old. That's pretty young. Which isn't actually that young in the current Russian Federation. Um, Um, I guess we should also note that though she was the best, she wasn't a lone gunwoman by a long shot, and she was not the only Soviet female sniper which means that you can go out and read up on a whole bunch of sniper
0: ladies. (laughs) If you are so
1: inclined. And if you want, you can see Ludmila's grave in Moscow. She's buried at the famous Novodivici graveyard. So that's all.
0: So thanks for listening. Tune in next time when we're going to talk about Dame Aviatrixes. That's
1: all. Is as bright as the new morning sun, but more than three hundred Nazis fell by your gun. Fell by your gun, more than three hundred Nazis fell by your gun. Fell by your gun,
0: fell by your gun, more than three hundred Nazis fell by your gun. Oh, really, she's there? Interesting. Yeah, that's a right pretty graveyard. (laughs) Right pretty graveyard.